Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, we have Dr. Amy Brady on to talk about Cli-Fi, climate change science fiction. Also, have a brief segment with Darren Long and Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society talking about the upcoming Adaptation Fund proposal. Please stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, we have Amy Brady, who is a book critic with the Chicago Review of Books, and she's going to talk about cli-fi, which is climate change science fiction. And this is a whole new genre that I actually had never heard of until about a month ago when someone mentioned it on our on the Facebook page. And so we got Amy on, and it was a really fascinating conversation, and we talked about ways of using fiction to promote climate change awareness. But I won't dwell on that. Just listen in. Some housekeeping. First off, on Twitter, there's a month-long initiative to try to get people to listen to more podcasts. And it's use the hashtag, hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. And what they're trying to do, and I think NPR initiated this, is just to get people that listen to podcasts to try to get other people that don't listen to podcasts to give some of their favorite podcasts a shot. So if you could use that, if you're out there and you're tweeting, use hashtag tripod. And my hashtag is, well, it's not a hashtag, but my Twitter handle is at USA Adapts. And so please, if you're recommending my podcast to people, do that. But if you have other favorite podcasts, it's a month-long thing. And it's just a big blanket, you know, shout out to podcasting. Also, some additional things. If you are not following the podcast on Facebook, just search for America Adapts on Facebook. And there's a page and then there's a community group that you have to join. And I will accept you. And we have some really interesting, I think, robust conversations on that community group now. It's getting more and more active. And I love the questions. And people offer feedbacks on specific episodes. Or if you have suggestions for guests, it all happens there. Come and visit and participate in the community group. Let's see. Also, the upcoming guest is Dr. Catherine Mock from Stanford Institute, and she's gonna. She was a senior director for one of the uh, assessment reports for the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, and so she's gonna talk kind of behind the scenes there at the IPCC and what it means to focus on adaptation. And it was a fascinating conversation and just uh, an amazing initiative that they did there. And let's see what else. Also, I have an app. So I'm, I'm pushing the app. It's free. But if you just, you're there on your phone right now, take advantage of this time. You're sitting there, you're listening. Go to the app store, down, search for America Daps, and you can find it on Google Play too. And it, it gives you more functionality. And also, I think what it, something you might like is like, let's say you're listening to this podcast and you think I make a stupid point or there's some insight you want to offer or you have a guest you want to recommend. You can email me directly within that app. It's very easy. Or if you want to tweet, you're sitting there and I'm talking and you're like, all right, when's the guys going to start talking again? You can go and you can tweet really easily the, the particular podcast or Facebook, you know, all the social media. So think about checking that out. All right. Also on the podcast, I have – so please stick around. I'm going to have a little intermission, just a tiny little intermission. But then Darren Long and Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society are going to come on and talk about the Adaptation Fund, one of the first funding pots for adaptation. And they have a call for proposals, and they're going to go into detail what that's all about. So if you want to think about getting some funding for the work that you do, see if you might qualify. All right. On that note, no more delay. Let's listen to Amy talk about Cli-Fi. 
Welcome back, adapters, to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. This is your host, Doug Parsons. On today's incredible episode, I have Dr. Amy Brady. So let me give a little introduction here, Amy. Hold on a sec. She's the senior editor at the Chicago Review of Books. She's a critic at large for publications like The Village Voice, and she does criticism for TVs, movies, and she edits a monthly, and this is a new monthly cli-fi column called Burning World. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. Happy to be here. Did I get any of that wrong? Is that all accurate? That's all accurate, 100%. Okay. Before we kind of jump into the meat of this, you know, you're my first like literary critic on the podcast. And so it, it's a little weird for me. Um, it, it's kind of a, I guess, unusual story how you got on here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I used to teach at a university and the science majors and the literary majors both kept to their own corners of campus. So I'm delighted that we actually have a chance to interact for a change. Well, you know, that just reminded me, one of my previous guests, Evelyn Geyser, she's an ecologist at Florida Atlantic University. Wait, uh, Florida International University. Sorry, I got that wrong. And she's also like the dean of the School of Science and Arts. And so she has to deal with like English majors, but then science majors. I thought it was like the weirdest combo. <laughs> Yeah, well, we just approach, um, you know, our, our interests from such different viewpoints. But, um, you know, that's the great thing about Cli-Fi is that you start to see some of those different viewpoints coming together to form something really interesting and valuable. All right. So we're going to explain what this Cli-Fi is in a minute. But I just wanted to give a little bit more background. I think I'd mentioned this before, but I was actually an undergrad in creative writing. So I have an English degree. And then you went on to get your Ph.D. in English, right? Yes, I did. So we took very different career paths. I <laughs> I went off and did science, and I had flashbacks as I was kind of looking at some of this English stuff, and I remember having to read all these classics and, you know, 19th century American literature, and you would come in, and then the professor would come in and say these things and the symbolism in the books, and it just, I thought it was a bunch of bullshit, and it just really frustrated me, but you 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 have mastered that art, right? <laughs> well, I like to think so, as much as symbolism can be mastered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to call your field bullshit, but you know what I'm saying? If someone is not in it, they're just like, where did they get that? Did we read the same book? I didn't see that. But they were smarter yeah. than I was. <laughs> no, it's just it's just a different way of, of looking at any sort of artifact. Um, I'm sure that when scientists both approach the same problem, they um, come at it from different directions. And um you know, maybe even interpret their findings a little differently. Okay, so let's jump into this. People are wondering, why do I have in a book critic on this episode? And so we're here to talk about climate change. And I've sort of alluded to it in previous episodes. And I love this expression, cli-fi. But I guess a little bit more background about what you do. And then, you know, just kind of jump in, sort of explain cli-fi. And I think that's going to, you know, unfold with some more of the questions I have. But if you can give some of that background, that would be really helpful for people. Sure, sure. Some background into what cli-fi is specifically. Yeah, I mean, some people, I mean, a month ago, I did not even understand what the term was. And so just, you know, what is it? Maybe a little bit of a history and sort of, yeah, just what, if you had to give your kind of semi-short elevator speech on cli-fi, what would you say? Sure. Cli-fi is an abbreviation for climate change fiction, kind of the way that sci-fi is an abbreviation of science fiction. And climate change fiction has really, it's been around for decades, though the term itself is relatively new. And it emerged um, kind of in the beginning of the early 
thousand and tens, kind of a, I would say in concert with the rise of climate change entering the public consciousness. Um, again, you know, climate change has been something we've known about for quite some time, but um, with good reason, we see a lot more um, news outlets and and other types of um, places talking about it. And so climate change fiction kind of emerged kind of in, in tangent to that. So the idea of climate change in fiction might be kind of a strange concept for some people, because usually when we think of fiction, we think of characters and their individual stories. We don't think necessarily of global phenomenon. And the thing is, is that if you ask 10 different people uh, how climate change fiction or cli-fi deals with the concept of cli-fi, uh, or excuse me, of climate change, you're going to get 10 different answers. And that's because there is no one thing that makes cli-fi cli-fi other than that it addresses climate change. So we have some authors who are writing about climate change uh, in the near or even distant future where human beings are still on Earth, but they are living in a post-global catastrophic event and are dealing with the, the various tragedies and the ways that climate change is affecting their everyday lives and our organizational systems as we know them. On the other hand, we have authors who are writing closer to the present time and are writing these wonderful human stories about scientists or other types of heroes who are dealing with climate change, perhaps because in their particular novel, they're on the cusp. Uh, humanity is on the cusp of a catastrophic event. And so the narratives in these two different time frames, um, you know, unfold a little bit differently. Some feel or read a little bit more like what we literary people would call realist fiction and others read a little bit more what we might call science fiction. But when you're talking about climate change, it's, I think, difficult to write it off as mere science fiction because it's a very real phenomenon and we're seeing the effects of it right now. Okay, so you have your background in English, but I mean, what's really your story, though? How did you come to like, I mean, you're doing this monthly column called Burning Worlds. You obviously mm -hmm. have a strong interest in the subject. I mean, really, where did it kind of just leap into to your life? Yeah, well, you know, as you mentioned, I have a background in literary criticism. But, you know, interestingly, I didn't really study climate change fiction or eco fiction or, um, you know, any of these other categories that we really associate with uh, novels or writing that deal with the natural world. Uh, I, I didn't study it um, formally. But, you know, in my just professional and personal life, it, those types of stories really started to resonate with me because even though I'm not a scientist, environmental concerns has always been something that has been very important to me. And, you know, I've been an avid, albeit layman, reader <laughs> of uh, environmental issues and um, climate change issues. And so when I first discovered uh, climate change fiction, that it was such a thing, I just started reading as much of it as I possibly could and looking up where, uh, looking for places where conversations about this fiction was happening. And with the few exceptions, like the Cli-Fi Report or Ecofiction.com or within certain academic circles, there really aren't sustained conversations happening about climate change fiction. 
So I wanted to create a space where those conversations could happen. And I'm approaching it as much from a, a reporter's perspective as I am an informed critic's perspective, by which I mean I'm still seeking out uh, answers to the question for why this type of literature matters and, um, you know, kind of what its historical roots are. All right. So that column, you've got a very dramatic name, Burning World. Whose idea was that? <laughs> well, the the name kind of came about conversations that I had with our uh, editor in chief at the Chicago Review of Books. But um, it's based on a, um, a Ballard novel um, called The Burning World. He was uh, an author, a British author who was writing in the 1960s, um, who had a write up through the 1980s, actually, and who had a series of uh, novels that took place in a kind of post-apocalyptic earth and with the apocalypse happening directly because of environmental problems. And so it's just it's just an homage to one of who I would consider a founder of this genre of literature. All right. So, of course, there was a literary reference in that title. There had to be. I was I should have known this. <laughs> All right. So I, I, you have this column and you've actually only just started it and you have, I think you, you probably have one coming out relatively soon. Yeah. So our column launched uh, this month in February and our next column is going to come out in March and it'll feature an interview with uh, the author Kim Stanley Robinson, whose book New York 2140 is going to be released in mid-March. And it is what uh, I would call a cli-fi novel. I don't know if the author himself would refer do it as that, but it's certainly a novel that deals directly with climate change. All right. You are creating this space for cli-fi writers and you're trying to explore more of it yourself. And I'm assuming that you've talked to authors and you just, you're, you're really digging and doing your homework. And I'm just curious, what is your impression? Like, what are the backgrounds of some of these people writing cli-fi now? I mean, what are they just, I'm assuming they come up from all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Most of these authors, as far as I can tell, don't have scientific backgrounds. I think that they share with me a fascination and a terrible concern for the state of our environment and our earth and um, are finding ways to incorporate that topic into their uh, into their writing. But that said, you know, there are some authors like the brilliant Lydia Millet, who is just incredibly talented, who um, I don't think that she necessarily refers to herself as a scientist, but she does have a background in science policy, perhaps, environmental policy, and uh, has worked as a writer for um, places like the National Resources Defense uh, Council and uh, other environmental places. So she definitely has one foot in that world. Well, that was one of my questions was just, do you sense that most of the authors are writing this type of fiction partly as advocates? And I mean, it, it sounds like some mm -hmm. are, but do you have a sense that the most of them feel like there's, a, uh, I guess, a mission associated with the kind of writing they're doing? Yeah, I think so. I would say that for the most part, that's that's absolutely true. I had mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson earlier, uh, who will be featured in our upcoming column. He's someone who has done a lot of research. He's not a scientist, but he does a lot of firsthand research traveling to New York, for example, to to write his upcoming novel about New York. He's traveled to Antarctica with scientists to study that continent when he wrote a novel called Antarctica. And 
the great thing that about his novels is that not only are they informed by the science that you know that scientists are, are are doing that predict the state of our earth and what's to come, you know they also have kind of a hopeful um, just a hopeful perspective that you know that yes things are going to change dramatically but you know humans will persevere. So in his case in particular, I would say that he's absolutely an advocate for paying more attention to climate change and adjusting our ways of life and our policies to try to uh, to mitigate it. But at the same time, he also, I think, is hopeful uh, for human ingenuity and um, our ability to to find ways to still you know survive whatever awaits us. Okay, I have to ask because, you know, it's the dream of every author that they write that next great novel and it becomes a, a bestseller. And I'm generalizing that's not the dream of every author. But <laughs> so what does the book industry think of Cli-Fi? Is it something that they, they care about and they, they're looking for content? Do they show up whatever at, you know, the workshops or the conferences that you guys go to? Well, yeah, I, I would say yes. But you know that the book world is a is an interesting place um, in the sense that categories do matter a lot because um, when booksellers sell books they have to decide what shelves they're going to put them on with that said a lot of books tend to who do deal with climate change tend to be marketed as speculative or speculative fiction or science fiction and um, to the extent that science fiction is selling um, which it is then yeah, then then I would say that Cli-Fi is also doing well, but we still don't see new releases necessarily coming out marketed as as Cli-Fi or even climate change fiction. It's more like this is science fiction and it deals with climate change in some way. And so, have you ever been to a bookstore and seen just a sign that said Cli-Fi? Not yet, but okay, maybe wow, if we okay. keep this column going, maybe in a few months or a couple of years. Well, no, I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. And to, to my listeners out there, if you are at some bookstore, if you've ever seen Cli-Fi, take a picture and, you know, send it to me or post it on the Facebook page. I'd be curious. I bet someone's encountered it somewhere that's some, you know, mom and pop bookstore ha- has created a, you know, a section for it. It's got to be out there. That would be amazing. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll be sure to get it to you. I'm sure you'd like that, you know, put it somewhere <laughs> on the website. Okay. Some of the material that you sent me, Amy sent me a bunch of essays to read because I'm going to be quite honest. When we first sort of chat about that, there's no way I was going to have time to read a book. And I, I still want a recommendation on the best book. And we're going to get to that later. But it's some really great essays. And I think some, some of them were just sort of talking about it more generally. But there was this one essay and I'm going to destroy his name, is Amitav Ghosh. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Amitav Ghosh. Ghosh. And so his title was, Where is the Fiction About Climate Change? It was a really compelling essay about, you know, I, you know, and I think he covered a bunch of topics, so I'm really just generalizing, but just like, you know, why is it so hard for fiction writers to approach this topic? And to me, and this is just my background, it seemed like a, a sort of a higher brow kind of essay. And it was fascinating to me to read someone in that universe talk about this subject and why authors are not tackling it like they should. And so I don't know if it's considered sort of a kind of a, a benchmark essay, you know, for such a new field. But I mean, what would you think of it? Well, I think Gosh is brilliant. And I will say that that essay is really based on a lot of ideas that he broached in a book that he released just this past fall called The Great Derangement. 
And, um, and that in turn is based on a series of lectures that he recently gave at, I think it was at the University of Chicago. So by, you know, writing that essay, I think he even reached even more people. This idea about climate change fiction and why it's so important for uh, us to read it. Yes, I would say that it's groundbreaking in the sense that it brought a lot of attention to the genre by mainstream uh, magazines and, um, you know, literary publications that may not have given Cli-Fi that much attention in the past. But, you know, it also generated a lot of argument, at least among us literary people, because while his ideas are, are great, and I'd be happy to talk more about them. You know, he also really kind of made a, a genre divide between literary fiction and science fiction and said that, you know, climate change fiction tends to fall more squarely in science fiction. And therefore, it's just not valued as much as it should be. And while I think that's probably true in some circles, what we're really seeing in the book world recently uh, in the last couple of years is this blurring of genre. And that blurring, I think, is happening especially in climate change fiction, you know, for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, that it's um, these are books that address the future, but also address something that's happening right now in the present. So it's it's a controversial essay. But uh, as you can see, it's also brilliant and really makes you think about why fiction is so important. That, you know, uh, my, it's a good segue to my next question is I don't really read that kind of universe of what you do. I, I'm not reading a lot of, I read movie reviews and, you know, occasional book review, but you know, <laughs> it, it could be a pretty cutthroat business and people just can really have the, some biting commentary about content that's being generated out there. And, you know, you sort of alluded to it, but what is the sort of vibe if, if you're a, let's say, uh, whatever a serious book critic is, and uh, that's a very big generalization, but what's the sense mm-hmm. on Cli-Fi? Is it just like, oh, that's just pulp, you know, fantasy stuff? I mean, and you sort of explained a little bit there, but I mean, it, it could, I guess, go any number of directions depending on who starts writing the, around the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, well, for, for reasons that Ghosh lays out, you know, there are some critics, um, some very serious critics who are a, a little suspicious of any novel that falls uh, partially or wholly within the genre of science fiction, um, which I personally think is ridiculous. I think science fiction is incredibly literary and necessary. So, there, you know, there's definitely that. But a lot of reviewers, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I was, because there's not that many reviews of Cli-Fi. But I would say that those that do, um, take the time to read these books and appreciate their literary merit are also seeing that these books are playing or have the potential to play a very valuable role in our public consciousness. And, you know, this is something that Ghosh kind of brought up a bit in that essay, which is that we as a species, you know, have a very hard time imagining what climate change is going to do to us. It's just, it's so huge and it's happening at a, at a pace that we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily detect in our everyday lives. And so in that, for those reasons, Cli-Fi helps us to imagine possible futures. Some of them are horribly scary and sad. Some of them, like um, Kim Stanley Robinson's novels, um, you know, are certainly a different earth than we know it now, but have a lot of hope in them. But in both cases, at least those novels are helping us to think 
and they are helping us to, you know, to form pictures in our heads of some uh, concrete pictures of something that still just seems so abstract, at least to us non-science people. <laughs> well, and abstract is a good point. Part of what I got is that uh, why he thinks more people are not jumping into it is that climate change and its implications are 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 just so radical and so beyond our kind of imag- imagination. Humans are polluting and they're potentially going to make the earth uninhabitable. I mean, it, it's something out of science fiction. And so, you know, how do you compete from that reality that's sort of looming out there? So uh, I, I sort of, I think that's what I was getting from some of the points that he was making in that essay that it just, it's, it, mm-hmm. it's too serious of a subject. And, you know, maybe that's a nice pivot that, one of the things I want to talk about is that, you know, what makes great literature and science fiction, people just make things up and there's a ton of great science fiction out there. And some of it is not related at all to our lives or anything, which just makes for great reads. But mm-hmm. you and I briefly chatted about, you know, you think of the nuclear age back in the 50s and 60s when we really were concerned that the Russians were going to nuke us and vice versa. And it would be in the end of humanity. And that drove a lot of great fiction, be it, you know, movies, books or whatever. And now we have climate change. This is not fake. This is not something we're just making up. It's looming out there. And hopefully it just will drive some really great creative thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that it will. Um, well, I know that it will. Um, you know, I, I keep coming back to Kim Stanley Robinson, but I think that's just because I just finished New York 2140 and I won't to give any spoilers to your <laughs> listeners, but it is fantastic, and I highly recommend you pick it up. Everyone pick it up. But, you know, I another author I hadn't mentioned uh, yet is Barbara Kingsolver, who is a writer that even folks who kind of are ca- more casual readers may be familiar with. And she wrote a novel a few years ago called Flight Behavior, and it addresses I, I, you know, I, I honestly can't even remember if it mentions climate change outright, but it does talk about just how much the natural world is changing and is having to adapt to changes to their habitat. And it's very much realist fiction. It's happening in the present and it serves as kind of a nice literary counterpoint to the more science fiction edge of the genre. And so folks who may not or may not be sure that science fiction is something that they want to go and pick up, then Flight Behavior might be the, the book that they start with. I've definitely heard of her. I haven't read any of her material, Barbara uh, Kingsolver, right? That, that's yeah. Um, yeah, definitely heard of her. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that says a lot about me. Another thing is just it, it, you're probably dealing mainly just with the United States, but are, are there any other countries with active cli-fi cultures? Yeah, you know, there are. There are um, authors who are writing in German and in French whose names and titles I will butcher. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if um, anyone wants to contact me on Twitter with links or what have you, um, I'm happy to provide them. And interestingly, it's only in the last couple of years when we are kind of starting to see a more proliferation of cli-fi themed novels being published in the United States, are we seeing these novels that were written in other languages becoming translated and published under U.S. imprints? I find it very exciting, very, very exciting, because like with any type of literary genre, where you grow up, the culture that you live in, that informs the type of book that you write. 
And so even though climate change uh, is a global phenomenon, it makes sense that authors who live in in Germany or in Russia or in France are going to approach it from um, a specifically German or French or Russian perspective. And we need that in the United States. Oh, I think Cli-Fi totally needs its its own Kafka, you know, that that <laughs> that sort of author needs to tackle Cli-Fi. That, it, it's that sort of issue. <laughs> well, you know, that that's my next uh, question. Or not even necessarily a question, but it, if these authors are potential advocates or some of them see that, you know, what they're doing is helping maybe change the the conversation around climate change, but we do need that. I, you know, I'm trying to think of classic books. Like we need that Cli-Fi version of To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, mm-hmm. it's just that book that almost everyone has read and still a classic. You know, and yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure if you think that book has been written yet, but we certainly need it. That's something that everyone picks up and that message kind of comes through. Well, yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 perhaps that book has been written. And the book that keeps coming to mind is John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Oh, OK. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a book that I, I had to read in high school. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of folks who had the luxury of going to college or beyond probably encounter at some point. But, you know, it's it's interesting to to me to um, to call a book like The Grapes of Wrath, Cli-Fi, because, you know, it was published in 1939 long before the term cli-fi ever uh, caught on and certainly long before the term climate change ever entered our public consciousness. But if we think about cli-fi as a genre of novels that are addressing environmental tragedy that's rooted in human causes, then The Grapes of Wrath certainly fits the bill. You know, it's a novel that is uh, about American Midwestern refugees who have to leave their farms because of the Dust Bowl, which um, was certainly exacerbated by um, poor farming choices and government policies. So Steinbeck would never have called it Cli-Fi. <laughs> but as a literary critic living in 2017, I I would. Well, that is a very interesting notion. And if any English professors are out there listening to this podcast, maybe you've already heard of this, but that sounds like a great lecture to have in, you know, a college level course of just trying to connect the dots with current issues like climate change with the grapes of wrath. That in itself would be the lecture, you know, making that, that what you just described. I think that might resonate in more with students and such on uh, what this really means for climate change. No, I love that idea a lot. Yeah. Well, if I may just say, I, I, I love that you are kind of making a call to action for, you know, professors to teach it like that because, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I'm reminded of what you said, um, a few moments ago about, um, you know, being, uh, in an English class and thinking, man, where, you know, where did my, my peers or my professor get that? Right. And you know, that, that's, that's the thing about literature is that the meaning that uh, someone takes away from it is going to depend so much on the lens that they look through when they're reading it. And if you read something like The Grapes of Wrath from the perspective of this is a depression era novel, it's about, you know, uh, individual triumph over hardship, then the idea of calling it something like climate change fiction or cli-fi is going to seem kind of strange. 
But if we can have more people in the academy on my side of the campus, on the literary side of the campus, start teaching books um, like The Graves of Wrath through a lens of environmentalism and climate change, then I think that these books are going to have a new kind of resonance for um, younger people and new readers. And I just I find that possibility tremendously exciting that seems like a wonderful topic for a future burning world column is clifi's this emerging genre or whatever and so you just identified grapes of wrath as a, one of the early books and maybe you can go back even farther and maybe you could list out and sort of make make those connections i that would be really interesting burning world column at least for me like people are going to start identifying existing classics to sort of say here here are those links that that would be I think very useful. That would be a useful exercise. Future <laughs> yeah, column. I, I, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that will be. I'll have to put that <laughs> on my calendar. Let me just write a little bottom essay for I'll do it. You know, I'll just, uh, well, you know, <laughs> what I was going to say, I mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird. We need the Cli-Fi version of that. But then on the flip side, I say we need our Cli-Fi version of Catch-22 and mm-hmm. the absurd nature of the politics around climate change I mean, Catch-22 probably is a kind of a more appropriate model for the sign of the times. It's just this ridiculousness of what, what's going on and the, you know, how people deal with science. And again, I would love, I mean, Catch-22, it's a dense book and you get through it. It's brilliant, but it's still, it's hard to kind of get for some of us to get through, but still it's, it's this masterpiece. So we need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, luckily, there are a range of authors out there who are writing with, you know, such different styles and tones. You know, some like my, my, uh, go-to author tonight, Kim Stanley Robinson, he is, his work is always shot through with a wry humor, you know, whereas other writers, um, tend to take a darker, a darker tone or a darker approach. So, you know, if, if, any of your listeners are interested in, you know, cli-fi or climate change fiction, there really is just such an interesting range of books that would fall under that category because it is just, it just crosses so many genres. I like this notion too of the author as activist. And in one of the essays that you sent me, or maybe I, 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 I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I got off one of the, the cli-fi report, but it was, I, I cut the, and I want to read this, this quote here. And it was just sort of within the essay and it's, it said, and this is rumored, Abraham Lincoln allegedly remarked to Harriet Beecher Stowe. So you're the little woman that started this great war. And so obviously the point is that this book led to these profound changes. And who knows if he actually said that, but Again, maybe there is that book that kind of is that catalyst for that bigger change. I, I, I love that sort of quote there, even though it might not even be true. Yeah, I love that quote, too. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons, one of my more ambitious reasons, I guess, for starting this column is, you know, to form a space where more conversations about this literature and by extension, the issue of climate change uh, can be had so that there does come a tipping point where, you know, enough people say we've had enough. You know, we have to do something about our carbon output. You know, we have to do something. Uh, We have to get on green energy. And, you know, real change does start to happen. I deal with scientists a lot, and I have scientists that come onto this podcast, and it's my background. I worked at the Science Society for a while, and let's just park all the issues dealing with scientists. But I think there's (laughs) (laughs) – we don't need to go into that. And so I I think there are 
fiction writers out there who really go the extra distance in their cli-fi work to like try to use sound science, but a lot of them, since it's fiction, just, you know, they take a lot of liberties. But I think the science community could probably be a resource for these, these people. And so, I mean, is, are you seeing any of that or is there an opportunity to maybe make some of that connection with the science world for, these cli-fi writers, or is it just kind of defeat the whole purpose of being a fiction writer anyway? Well, I don't think that anyone will ever pick up a cli-fi novel and mistake it for um, some sort of scientific report. I think that if they did, then the novel would fail at some level, <laughs> at least in terms of its literary merit. But, you know, I, I would say that any, you know, any scientist who you know, is studying climate change and, you know, is interested in predictive models, um, you know, to pick up a cli-fi novel that does take place in the near or distant future. You know, it's, it's kind of another way of imagining, um, you know, those models unfolding and, and happening, um, you know, not just on the natural world level, but, you know, looking at how it really affects human life and animal life life and all of natural life. I, I was going to recommend that, you know, and I bet some cli-fi writers are doing this, but, you know, there are climate change conferences and workshops out there and it would probably just provide a lot of fodder for them and, and ideas for the books that they attend those. And then it helps them to kind of say, all right, well, I'm going to try to base some of these broader topics of climate change, you know, more in the sound science. And on the flip side, I think scientists who deal with climate change would probably benefit from going to a cli-fi event, you know, seeing how information like that this is being projected to a more public audience. And so that there needs to be that sort of cross-pollinization. Oh, hey, I I agree 100%. You know, I science uh you know tells its own kind of story and you know for any scientists who want to see how that story is being received or not by the non-scientific world, then I think that these sorts of conferences and gatherings and columns and what have you are a great place to to see how their work is resonating with the larger larger public. All right, so you and I need to get on a panel together, all right? You find a conference. Absolutely. Let's, let's you it. tell me the time and place, and I am there. <laughs> well, if you hear of some events, I want. To, I'm, I'm interested in going to your events too and seeing. So just yeah, let's stay in touch and see. Uh, the, you know, there's a big national adaptation forum in Minnesota in May that might be interesting for you. That it's going to be all things climate change. So yeah, I mean, we'll keep each other abreast yeah. of the subject. So absolutely. Okay, so I don't know if you quite understood the kind of the focus of this podcast, you know, it, it's a climate change podcast, but you know, it's America adapts. And so my emphasis generally is on how we're going to adapt to climate change. There are podcasts out there that talk about the impacts or just the science, but I'm, I get, I feel like I'm lucky. I get to talk about the sort of this proactive adapting. And I'm just curious if, if you're kind of comfortable talking about adaptation do you see it show up in any of the cli-fi and i and i think some of them as they're just writing about the future there's a notion of adapting anyway but did do you feel like that's been addressed specifically do you know enough about the subject i i mean i i can talk about uh the ways in which 
human beings are, you know, kind of going about their lives in, you know, in a future world in some of these novels. Uh, for example, in New York 2140, again, we'll not give away too much because I want everybody to go pick <laughs> it up. And I swear, I don't know Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know him. I'm not his publicist. You're getting a percentage. You're getting a percentage. <laughs> I get no kickbacks, I promise. But, you know, it takes place about 120 years in the future uh, in New York City. Uh, Manhattan is partially submerged. Ocean levels have rised 50 feet and uh, pretty much everything below 34th Street is is underwater. And now all of lower Manhattan functions kind of like Venice, Italy. Uh, all of those streets are now oh, wow. canals. It's really interesting in the sense that New York is no longer the New York that we know it because it's now underwater. People don't go to work in subways anymore. Now they have their own little jet skis or boats that they they get on, you know, on through the canals onto work. Or they take um, what Robinson calls uh, airships, different types of flying machines. So there's that. But on the other hand, you know, it's also a New York where Wall Street still exists. It's no longer down in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. It's now up north by the cloisters. But, you know, capitalism is alive and well. Um, the financial market is alive and well. People still go to to get drinks after work and flirt and meet people and talk shop. And, you know, in that particular book, you know, we we do see humanity adapting and in a lot of ways not changing which is kind of scary. <laughs> it's really interesting. You know, but on the other hand, we have other book like uh, Eden Lepucky's California, which um, really feels post-apocalyptic in some ways. Humans are still here, but, um, you know, it's civilization as we know it is gone. You know, to the extent that we are still around in these books, we have adapted. You caught me thinking about some of the tools for climate change planning and adaptation planning. There's a thing called scenario planning, which it's pretty obvious what that is, but they do is they get people in a room and they talk about, they have these different models and you've talked about the models. Okay, we're going to have three feet sea level rise. What's the temperature going to be like? And so they come up with these models and they, they come up with different scenarios on how they think the future is going to be. And then they take that information and they're not predicting the future. They're just trying to give okay, these are different scenarios, what the the future might look like. So how would we plan accordingly on this landscape or on the built environment? And what you just described with New York and some of those details, I think getting someone like a a Cliveye rider into one of these scenario planning workshops and participating in that, because what you literally do are just kind of, you're being creative. You're coming up with like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, what is the natural environment going to look like? What's this going to look like? I think it's a great idea if, you know, Cliveye writers had a chance to meet with scientists, you know, to go over various models. To come back to the idea, you know, of why Cliveye is so important is that it takes that kind of future imagining and turns it into a narrative so that it it can be digested and better understood. One thing that I think all people, um, not even not just literary people, uh, experience is that we are much more likely to be convinced of something or even just more likely to understand something if it's presented to us as a narrative and not just a series of facts. You're, you're spot on. Narrative is, is something I, I work with a colleague a lot on, and that's just how people digest information. You know, it, it's, it's biological, I think. And so you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And again, back to this notion, I didn't get to finish my thought because I cut myself off there on the, that <laughs> workshop, but 
I, I really do think there's something there. And the idea of, cause what happens in these workshops is they'll go through this process and then it's sound science and it's, you know, it's all technical, but then it'll be a done and they'll write a report. But then a lot of it just lands with a thud because when they go share it with someone else, like you're saying, there's not really a strong narrative to kind of explain how this fits in or just to capture people's imagination. How are we going to make different planning decisions? And so I'm all those adaptation planners out there. Maybe you need to bring like a Cli-Fi writer into that workshop process and help create a better narrative and using their imagination in different ways. And I'm sure some of them are going to be like, you are more on Doug because like this, <laughs> this person is talking about, you know, flying elephants and that's not helpful to us, but it's, you know what I'm talking about here? It's just the, the idea of like grounding some more of this science technical information in, in back to what you just said w- with sort of a narrative framework. It's just, it's so important to get to that next level where people are going to take action on it. Yeah. You know, I, I completely agree. And if I may take it even one step further, the thing that I love about a novel as opposed to say a film, though I love the movies, don't get me wrong, but a novel, you have to spend a certain amount of time with it and in its world to um, to benefit from all it has to offer, uh, or at least to finish it. And in doing so, you encounter so many different perspectives and sustained dialogues between human beings. And so the narratives that novels in particular offer, I think, are just incredibly valuable, especially when um, they also are serving as a kind of, of advocate for something like climate change um, mitigation. Well, we've been talking about it, and I, I need to wrap this up relatively soon with you, but we've been talking a lot about books, but mm-hmm. a lot of people watch movies. And so you do, I think, movie reviews. And I, I think I've even seen you show up on Rotten Tomatoes at you know, the, the end all for, uh, <laughs> for movie reviews. I love it. That's, that's the big time. And so any climate change movies that stand out for you? Oh, goodness. You know, I think I talked myself into a corner there because <laughs> uh, I don't know that there are any. I, I have to admit that I am almost more of a I'm more of a critic of documentaries. And so I watch a lot of climate change uh, and environmentally focused documentaries So those um, I could talk a bit about. But in terms of movies, no, nothing is immediately coming to mind. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, and speaking of that might be another future episode because I, I think a lot of people put a lot of effort into these beautiful doc, climate change documentaries and like 17 people see them. They don't really influence like they want. And I think they, they, they lose track of who, who they should be making those movies for, but that's a different subject. So, yeah. Well, and, and so with the movies, you know, the, the probably the biggest blockbuster one was the day after tomorrow and that movie yes. it created climate change awareness through the roof and yet it ticked off scientists so much and rightly so everybody just wants to freeze the world with climate change and you know there was that movie Snowpiercer I don't know if you ever saw that oh I did yeah bizarre film but again it was another climate change film and again they had to freeze the earth it's like oh gosh you know that's not what's going to (laughs) happen but I guess it's a it's a good um, dramatic device to use in a film all right we just need how do we keep everybody in a train let's uh, freeze the world and not heat it things up so i don't know on that note so i i asked a couple questions here at the end amy and so you've you've brought up multiple books here and you can you can repeat what you've already said but my mm-hmm. question is okay 
I want you to recommend two books. And so one book, let's say you consume a lot of fiction, you read novels, and you're just a higher-end type of reader. What mm-hmm. cli-fi novel would you recommend to that type of reader? I would have to say... I would have to say Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. Okay. And and do you, do you, don't give anything away, but just a brief synopsis. Why? What, what, what would capture people's interest there? Well, the writing is gorgeous. So if you are an appreciator of language, then that's a, it's a great book. But it's also a kind of thriller. And, you know, it's a lot, so much of, of Cli-Fi deals with tense situations, but I wouldn't necessarily categorize them as thrillers. And this one is very much a thriller. Uh, it also takes um, place uh, in a drought that's happening in the southwestern part of the United States. And I just personally find that part of the United States fascinating, you know, socially and geographically. So the setting of it is um, gorgeous and strange. And it's it's just all around a great book. All right, so I'm going to have in my show notes links to these and you can Amazon or the libraries or such. And so I'll have that. But okay, so the second question related to a book recommendation, let's say you're a big old dumbass like I am and you're just, <laughs> you just want, it's, it's a good read and it just introduces you to the genre. Oh my gosh, I don't, you can, you can't even answer that probably because you're going to be like, oh, you're throwing the book under the, the bus. But <laughs> the Harry Potter of the kind of cli-fi universe, what, what would you recommend? Oh, easy. Well, since you brought up Harry Potter, I will recommend a great cli-fi novel that I think could also be classified as a young adult novel. It's by the brilliant Lydia Millet. It's called Pills and Starships. It's just, it's, it's really great. It's, you know, it's written, uh, in such a way that anyone reading it is not going to feel stupid, but it's also written at, in such a way that, um, it's not going to alienate anyone either. A lot like the, the Harry Potter books, which, which are great. Yeah. Pills and Starships, Lydia Millet. And I would, you didn't ask, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would also, um, recommend seeking out some of her essays on the future of the world and the possibility of extinctions of species. She is just such a lyrical but clear writer, and she's she's really something else. Cool. So have you considered writing any cli-fi? Are you actual writer of, like, <laughs> novels, or just, are you sticking to criticism? How does that work? No, well, you know what? I would love to write a novel, but I think you have to um, have a, a certain talent and a certain mind for it, and I'm not sure I have either. So who knows? <laughs> we'll see. But no, in the in the near future, anyway, I'm sticking to um, to criticism and arts journalism. I, I didn't think I was going to reveal this, but I actually came up with my own climate change novel, and this was probably like seven or eight years ago, and I remembered this like when I was getting ready for this. And I'll throw the idea out there just because I'm not going to write this book. I don't have the discipline to write the book, but it's it's sort of a thriller set maybe uh-huh. 25, 40 years in the future, and it's kind of you know the whole notion of like Nazi hunters that went and tracked down the Nazis after oh, – yeah. so this would be – sort of like the equivalent of climate hunters that these, a lot of these people are still alive, but the 
just catastrophic climate change had kicked in and there's nothing you can do, but some people want to get revenge. They go in and all these people have gone into hiding and they're climate hunters. That was the topic. And I'm sure someone's already done it already because there's no original <laughs> ideas left in the universe. And I thought that would have been like a cool movie with like Brad Pitt once I optioned the, the, the book to a movie, but you got to write the book first before they option the book. So that's been, <laughs> been part of my problem. So anyway, <laughs> so I think well, like I this once a bit. Okay. <laughs> So I, I do want to wrap this up, but any sort of final thoughts that you have and just think of my, my listeners represents of the whole spectrum. You know, I think I have school teachers, but I have scientists, but just any final thoughts about what you do in the genre of cli-fi? Well, I would say that don't let the term cli-fi and its association with the phrase sci-fi turn you off if science fiction isn't your thing. Um, I personally love science fiction, and I think science fiction has so much more literary merit than most people give it credit for. But um, I also understand why it's not some people's thing. Um, but the thing about cli-fi is that it crosses so many genres and the chances are is that there is some form of the genre out there that will really appeal to to whatever your individual taste is um, and then the only thing I would also add is that the study of, of ecology and environmentalism in literature is in itself not a new thing um, not by any means. There, there are people who um, are much more versed in it than than I am. They, they actually received their PhDs doing just that. And those are the people who are writing um, book length nonfiction studies um, about these novels. And granted, a lot of them are fairly academic. But, you know, if this is something that you uh, or any of your listeners are interested in, columns like mine are just a starting point. There are so many um, brilliant people who are interested in what literature has to say about the climate and about the environment. And they're saying really smart things. Very cool message. And just so on that note, too, is that, you know, I, I have a Facebook page and I have a community group page. And so I know you have your own networks, but maybe that's something that you do is just we, you know, we post every Burning World column within that group. And it gives people a chance to kind of read something a little bit different than th that normally shows up there. And it's just kind of a recurring thing. I totally think we should do that. Yeah. And I think I suggested to you before, I don't know how you felt about this past 45 minutes if you enjoyed yourself <laughs> but we get you back on maybe for a shorter segment or something but just maybe if there's a really cool burning world column we have a we, we touch base and we chat a little bit about it because you know i certainly want to bring i don't want to describe what you do pop culture but you know what i mean the sort of wider arts uh, associated <laughs> with with this issue that I, I i think is important hey absolutely you know, for what it's worth, in April, the column is going to be, you know, short, very short little quotes and testimonies from a whole range of cli-fi authors who are answering uh, the question that I gave them, which is what can climate fiction teach us or show us that scientific reports cannot? And their answers are fascinating. Okay, cool. Oh, and I forget, the, the final thing that I asked my guest is like, do you have a recommendation for a future guest for the podcast? Oh, man. Can I mention an author? Well, uh, well if it's relevant to the podcast, of course. <laughs> well, um, you know, I would recommend, I, I don't know if she would be interested, but I absolutely recommend Lydia Millet. Um, I think that her writing is brilliant, but, uh, you know, she also uh, is a writer for um, a lot of environmental advocacy organizations. And I think that she really kind of crosses both worlds in some really interesting ways. 
And so do you know her? I know her uh, through email exchanges. I don't know her in person, but um, she seems like somebody who is really interested in generating conversations about this topic. I will say, though, I've only ever uh, heard her uh, in writing. <laughs> I've never actually heard her appear on a podcast. And, um, you know, I, I know that some folks aren't always uh, thrilled about doing that. <laughs> okay. Well, I will do my homework on that, but that's a very interesting suggestion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to wrap this up. This has been a very fun conversation for me, Amy. I hope you've enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Oh, delightful. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amy Brady. What a interesting conversation to know that Cli-Fi is out there. I'm taking a little short little intermission just to let everyone catch their breath. If you want to take some notes or if you want to contact me or if you want to write a review, but I just, I, sometimes people get a little confused about the different segments here. And so an upcoming segment is with Darren Long and Molly Cross with the Wildlife Conservation Society. It's a much shorter segment and they're going to be talking about the adaptation fund and the call for proposals. So don't go anywhere. I just want to take, everyone can take a deep breath and, you know, I wanted to people to know that there are two separate parts to this podcast. All right. On that note, let's get started again. Thanks. Okay, folks, welcome back to America Daps. We have a little follow-up session on our previous discussion. I have Darren Long and Dr. Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society. Hey, Darren and Molly. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Good to be here. I have you on for a particular reason. So you, you have a big announcement to make, right, Darren? What, what's this all about? We do. Thanks for asking, Doug. WCS has just published its new request for proposals for the Climate Adaptation Fund, which is a program that make, makes grants for on-the-ground applied adaptation projects all across the United States with support from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. We'll make uh, about $2.5 million worth of grants this year. Okay, I probably got too serious too quickly, but Darren, your Falcons just choked big time, right? Doug, we're not going to talk about that today. I mean, it was like 28 to 3, and they lost you know, this podcast to say positive. <laughs> I'm keeping this in. You know, too. you know, I'm from Boston, right, Doug? Oh, humiliation. I know. Oh, it, it was a very exciting game. We don't have to dwell on it. I just wanted to point out that, you know, Darren used to go to the games. He worked at the Blank Foundation, and they got to go to all the games, and he used to rub it in my face, and he talked about those Falcons, and they just had the ultimate choke. So I just, I, you know, I just I know. This is sweet revenge for you, Doc. <laughs> yes. They had that fancy foundation building, and they would go to the games every weekend, and here we are. Well, <laughs> I just thought that was important to bring up for people out there. All right. Back to – and so, Molly, maybe just – we're going to get a little bit more into what Darren's talking about here, but you, what's your role with the Adaptation Fund? So I'm the senior advisor, science advisor to the grant program, and I've been trying to bring some of the experiences that I've had in doing adaptation planning and on-the-ground adaptation work to the grant program to help us think about – you know, how do we set the criteria? How do we evaluate proposals? How do we define the kinds of adaptation projects that we're looking to support? Okay, Darren, could you repeat one more time? When is the deadline to get the, the applications in? We have a pre-proposal application, which is a short application form that is due April 7th. 
Okay, so about a month. So that's still plenty of time. Darren, this this adaptation fund, it was pretty much one of the first of its kind focusing on adaptation, right? I mean, how old is it? We think so. We started the adaptation fund in 2011. And Doug, uh, you and I talked a lot back then. And I think you know that I did some preliminary research before we established the fund to look around the country and try to find examples of who was doing adaptation work on the ground. So, you know, who was taking adaptation science and adaptation planning and actually trying to put some things into practice on the ground. I found six examples. That's it. And they were all sea level rise projects. So we're, we're very proud to say that six, since then, uh, the Climate Adaptation Fund has supported 66 projects for applied on the ground adaptation work across the country. Uh, and that's just a drop in the bucket of what's actually happening out there. Right. And so you think of all, especially with the storms that kind of hit the East Coast, that all sorts of big money came into adaptation and resilience planning. But you guys were there uh, uh, first. And But uh, it must be encouraging and useful to kind of see how some of these other adaptation projects are playing out. Molly, I mean, you, there's standards that are set as they give this money out through these bigger pots of money. Is there any sort of overlap on how you guys assess what an adaptation project is with some of these other initiatives going on? Yeah. So as you and I've talked about before, Doug, and, and on the show, actually, in an earlier podcast, a lot of my work is focused on the process of planning. So how do people start to take climate change science and information into their thinking about conservation projects, their goals and the actions that they're trying to achieve? So what we're looking for in these projects is a clear sense of what was the science that you considered as you were designing your conservation project? And, and how does, how does that science influence the design of what you're doing? Are you changing where you're working or what you're doing or how you're doing that work in some way to be as effective as possible in the face of climate change? So a lot of the standards that we set for projects that we think fit the bill for our grant program, um, our application questions and, and the kinds of questions and information we seek from applicants has to do with what do you think climate change means for the system you're working in and how have you designed your project to address those those issues? Because we recognize that there's a huge amount of really important conservation work to be done out there across this country, across the world. But our program is specifically targeting the niche of projects that are addressing climate change impacts and challenges. Totally forgot to note at the beginning that, Molly, you were my second guest on the podcast. I've been going for like... <laughs> I'm on like guest 32, I think, and you were the second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks again for coming on. It was a fun conversation. Of course. Yeah. I, I, being the guinea pig, but I, I'm happy to have done that. <laughs> oh, I would probably remember this. Just, what the hell is Doug doing? Um, <laughs> but okay. So I, I had a, I remember when I think about adaptation and Darren, you sort of alluded to this too, is that Molly in our discussion, we talk about what is adaptation? How do you even know what it is? And you know, there's the great Supreme Court cases, you know, talking about pornography. I know it when I see it and. Darren, do you feel confident now that you have, you funded 66 projects that you know adaptation when you see it? We think so. I mean, we see a lot of really good conservation projects that aren't always adaptation projects, but many times we see both. So, you know, Molly has done a really good job uh, with our program in laying out a formula that, that helps us to identify um, intentionality. Uh, as a term that's used by a, a colleague of ours, Bruce Stein, at the National Wildlife Federation, to describe uh, a process where uh, an organization or a conservation practitioner uh, is being very thoughtful about how they consider climate science 
in their work, how climate is impacting either the species or the ecosystems that they care about, uh, how they're using conservation planning and adaptation planning processes um, to get to a point where they're coming to a fund like ours and saying, here's what we think we should be doing on the ground based on our planning and based with the, on what the science says. And so Molly has, has set up this formula that, that we talk about in, in our materials, uh, where we say connect the dots for us. You know, tell us how you got from what you know about the climate science to what you learned in your planning process to the point where you're coming to us and asking us to help you support certain actions on the ground. So for somebody who's interested in applying for a grant, Molly, we've talked a little bit about how you're com- trying to communicate what's happening with these projects or, you know, c- consistent themes and whatever. Are there any specific materials you can point people to to get a really good sense of what's been funded in the past? I mean, I guess your website uh-huh. or, but I mean, are there, what, what's, what should yeah. you look at? Yeah, well, there's a couple of, of really important resources that I recommend anyone who's interested in the grant program check out. One is our call for proposals, which says a lot about the types of projects we're looking to support. But we also release every year what we call an applicant guidance document that goes alongside the call for proposals. And it lays out what we see as some of the strong char- or the characteristics for what would make a strong proposal to our grant program. So, so that has a lot of information in it about more, more generally about the kinds of projects we're looking to support. We also have a new resource that is um, we're going to be releasing very soon that is a report that we call uh, 14 Solutions to Problems Climate Change Poses for Nature Conservation. And it is just providing um, su- a subsample of some of the projects that we've funded. So it's not necessarily the full list of all 66 projects that we've funded to date, but there are 22 on the ground adaptation projects highlighted in this new report that are addressing particular climate change problems that face nature conservation around the United States. So that is going to be a report that people can uh, access online and we'll be releasing it, like I said, in, in roughly the next month. And it, it'll be a way to see some of the stories of the work that we're supporting. Okay. So this adaptation fund is not without controversy. I, I, I hear a lot of bad buzz about, a couple of Florida projects were rejected for funding not so long ago, and just wondering maybe if you could provide some feedback on what what happened there. So I, I don't suppose you had anything to do with those projects, <laughs> did you, Doug? All right, all right. <laughs> so I submitted two proposals; they didn't get accepted, and we know a lot of politics were involved. There's just these two guys don't even like me. I think that's probably what the most. <laughs> and I, they, they, and at least that bad buzzer hasn't gone past your office, right? <laughs> Well, you know, all this money going to the Midwest, I keep pushing on this podcast, give up on the Midwest. Why are you wasting your time there? And just people keep investing there. So, you know, anyway, (laughs) those were good projects, but I understand you have limited dollars and it might have just shown bias. There's a variety of things. Well, Doug, there's a variety of things that we consider when we're evaluating projects. We do set, you know, sort of a bar of the, 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 level of climate science and planning that we want to see projects um, bringing into their conservation design. But we also have an investment strategy where we're trying to invest in diverse, many diverse stories of adaptation around the country. And so we are trying to spread our dollars across different states, across different ecosystems, across 
projects that are addressing different kinds of climate change impacts. And so we aren't necessarily going to just fund projects focused on sea level rise in a particular part of the country. We really want to create a portfolio of diverse stories that we can tell. And so it's challenging. Every year we have a different set of projects put in front of us, and we're looking at those projects in terms of their overall quality. But we also look at how they add to the portfolio of stories that we have to tell with our projects. Okay, but we could just go on record that people from Florida should still, if they want to submit a proposal, they, they, they should at least consider it, right? Yes, absolutely. They should. And in fact, Doug, we have funded a project in Florida. Uh, it wasn't yours, but this was a, uh, <laughs> this was a project about wildlife connectivity and climate change in the Everglades. All right, and technically it was FWC's project, not my project. Let's just make that clear. So. <laughs> I won't. I won't take any personal insult about you know you have a certain bar to meet to get funded. I don't read into that statement, but uh, <laughs> all right, okay, enough of that. You know, Doug, I should I should also interject and and you know don't don't be hurt that yours wasn't funded. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to fund quite a lot of the applications we, we get. I mean, it's encouraging to us that, that the program has been so popular uh, that it's become incredibly competitive. So, you know, for those 66 grants we've made, we've had over 500 proposals. Well, and also, not that I want to encourage people to apply for something they know they're not going to get, but I think for you guys, it's probably incredibly useful to see this breadth of projects that are submitted and just to even get a sense of like what's going on out there. And I'm sure that's encouraging and you probably get some ideas, even if you don't ultimately like fund a project. Oh, absolutely. And we... We learn so much from the projects that are coming in in terms of new ideas. You asked that question about, do we know what is adaptation? And I would say, I feel like I've put some really sort of gray, fuzzy boundaries around what I consider to be adaptation. But this proposal process is introducing me to new ideas all the time. And a lot of those projects do get funded. And we are interested in seeing new and innovative ways to address the challenges of climate change. And so it's not always just standard projects that we're funding. We really want to see that kind of innovation. And so we certainly learn a lot. And we, we learn more and more about what adaptation could look like every year. And so we definitely encourage people to apply. We also encourage people to call us, to call Darren, to call myself, to call the program officer, uh, manager Liz Tully with, you know, to say, hey, I've got this idea. Do you think it could be a good fit with the grant program? Because we do want to give people as the best feedback we can on whether we think a project might be a good fit or not. And I'll include like some of that on my show notes, links and stuff to you guys that people can reach out to you. Some more logistical information. Okay, what's the maximum amount that they can apply for? How many years? What, what if for people thinking like, okay, do they really want to do this? Sure. Uh, the minimum request amount is fifty thousand dollars. The maximum request amount for us is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And most of our grants are are two years, uh, so that would be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars maximum over two years. Okay, and so you guys do this pre-proposal. If you make it through that cut, then what's the deadline on the next level there? So pre-proposals will come in April 7th. Uh, we'll take uh, about eight weeks to evaluate those. We'll invite full proposals in June. Um, those are typically due in the middle of July. And we get together with our advisory committee in late August to uh, evaluate and review those proposals. 
Well, and I recommend if you guys out there actually making it to the National Adaptation Forum, I think Darren and Molly, you'll both be there, right? We will. Liz Tully yep. will be there too. Right. So, yep. you know, you, if you've submitted it, if you haven't heard back, you've been rejected, at least, you know, go up and introduce yourselves to you guys, right? <laughs> so maybe they get a little insider information <laughs> if they go for phase two, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and we we will be hosting a symposium at the National Adaptation Forum that's going to be showcasing projects that we funded with our grant dollars that are focused in particular on, on projects that are providing adaptation benefits to both people and to nature. So I encourage people, I don't know the, the date exactly when that one will be scheduled, but I encourage people to look it up and come and learn about some of the projects we've supported, the great work that's being done, and definitely come up and, and introduce yourselves to us while you're there. Cool. So any yes, final and oh sorry, go on, Darren. Go on. I was just gonna say, let me add a shameless plug for our booth at the <laughs> National Adaptation Forum. Uh, where you can come find us. Uh me, Molly, and Liz will be stationing ourselves around that area and uh are excited to talk to uh any current applicants, current grantees, potential applicants. Uh we want to hear from you. So please stop by and say hello. They will be autographing uh, Adaptation Fund themed <laughs> shot glasses. So show up to get your shot glass. We did We did have beer coasters one year. We'll oh. see if we can do that again. Oh, nice. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> so any final thoughts, Darren? And then any final thoughts, Molly? Yeah, Doug, I just wanted to talk about some new and, of course, very exciting components of the Climate Adaptation Fund program for 2017. We try to keep it fresh every year. And, okay. And, you know, really what's happening is is that we're evolving along with our applicants and, and um, evolving as the field evolves. And so we've added, for instance, a, a component for uh, the first time last year to support adaptation projects in urban areas. Um, obviously, we understand that, that biodiversity is a little bit different in those type of settings, but we think it's still important. Um, and we also know, uh, and a lot of research, research reflects, uh, that there are many communities in urban areas that are, are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change. Often, those are lower income communities or communities of color. Um, so we have put a priority on proposals for work in those areas. Uh, we continue to look for uh, really innovative and new projects, uh, new to us and new to the field. Um, I wish I could tell you what those are, but I, I don't know. I'm hoping some of our applicants will tell us. Um, and for the first time, we, after six years of, uh, of funding across the U.S., we've identified a few places where, where we've had a little bit more trouble making grants. Uh, and, and so we'd like to try to fill in some of those gaps. Uh, we'll continue to fund in, in every state and, and every U.S. territory. Um, but we know that, that we've had trouble making grants uh, and haven't had as many applications as we'd like from places like uh, the Mississippi River Valley, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the other U.S. territories. Well, good to know. Molly, any final thoughts? Uh, no, just that I will, other than just encourage people to check out the grant program, to contact us with project ideas if they'd like to discuss anything before applying. But we love to see all of the great work that people are doing around the country and hope that you'll consider applying to the program and, you know, definitely contact us with any questions. Great. Good luck with this round. I'm sure it'll you'll get an interesting batch of uh, proposals. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. All right, everybody, that is a wrap. Until next time. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks to Dr. Amy Brady from the Chicago Book 
review of books for coming on and talking about cli-fi also thanks to molly cross and to darren long from wildlife conservation society come on and sharing that information about the adaptation fund hey take a shot if you're doing some great on the ground adaptation work you know they've been funding a lot of projects and you know here here's your chance and you can actually learn quite a bit going through that process too i think all right, final housekeeping. Don't forget, there's a Facebook page and community group. Please look it up, America Adapts. And there's a Twitter handle for you to tweet me at. I t- like to retweet all the time at USA Adapts. Also there, I would mentioned the free app. Check that out. Just look in the App Store for America Adapts. Next week's upcoming guest is Dr. Catherine Mock from the IPCC. She was one of the co-directors of the uh, – uh, assessment reports on adaptation we kind of go behind the scenes at the intergovernmental panel on climate change really interesting conversation another upcoming guest is judge alice hill who will be coming on and talking about national security and adaptation and her really significant role within the white house the previous white house and what was going on and how to make climate change a national security issue so on that note please contact me again i've mentioned this many times before it's the best part of my week when i hear randomly from people on what they think of the podcast or if they have suggestions for guests and you know they people are literally writing me from all over the world so please take you know time out i i generally respond to everyone and i, I love hearing from you and that i'm confused at america adapts at gmail.com all right on that note i hope everyone has a great week and thank you so much for listening into the podcast 